Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, my friends. I'm Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community. But most of all, in this specific moment, you're overwhelmingly unqualified host, especially unqualified with the guests I had in the room this week. We've got a good one for you. We've got Alex Johnson of Fintech Takes and Jason McCullough of Fintech Business Weekly coming in hot. We got together at Money 2020 offices at the Money 2020 offices. It's a natural penchant to say that we got together at Money 2020. Money 2020 offices during New York Fintech Week and chatted about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of fintech life. But quickly before we get to the episode, time for a little something about the folks who made this episode happen. NeuroID. NeuroID is bringing behavioral data into the mix. Think about it basically as bringing body language into the digital world. Someone fidgeting in their chairs, someone taking too long to fill out their social security number, or maybe they're switching tabs like crazy. It all comes back to fraud and to KYC and to the pain that we deal with every day in this industry. But this week, we're going to go a little bit deeper, specifically on fraud rings. If you live with a passive-aggressive long-term girlfriend, then wait just one second. I will explain. I'm not talking about rings. I'm talking about fraud rings. Stay with me, folks. Back to my serious fintech side, though, if that exists. I guess in this case it does because it's actually a subject to care about. Fraud rings. They're an incredibly underdiscussed and misunderstood part of our industry. We gotta talk about it. One that does absolutely no good for anyone except the fraudsters. In true NeuroID fashion, they've actually released a report. This report is a is as unique as their technology, actually. It's got insights, actual insights that are unique to the space. They go deep into how fraud rings choose their targets and what they look like in different fintech verticals. Another pet peeve of, pet peeve of mine in our industry is that this solves, sorry, another pet peeve of mine in our industry that this solves is the general competitive nature, even when it comes to things like sharing data to fight financial crime that we have as an industry. If you're not letting your competitors know that you just were a target, then how could they connect the dots and follow the money as an industry without a deep audit that generally won't happen? So fintechs don't know what they don't know, but NeuroID sees it all. They detect fraud rings at scale and in real time and have collected those learnings in a new report called the anatomy of a fraud ring attack sound too good to be true go to neuroid.com backslash ffs to dig in and schedule a demo with the fine folks at neuroid they can offer a multitude of deeper answers about what you see in that actual report but again go to neuroid neuro slash id.com or sorry neuro dash id.com backslash ffs to dig in to the report schedule a demo meet the team they're truly some of the best folks in the industry doing some of the most important work so give them a shot give them a shout and now on to our episode all right guys so we are recording how we doing Doing good. Doing, Doing good. Happy New York. Yeah. Good. Welcome to For Fintech Sake, guys. So that people can actually know the voice that they are listening to, maybe we introduce ourselves. Hopefully they know who I am by now or else I'm really not doing my job. Jason, let's start with you. Who are yeah. you? 
Uh, Jason Mikula, uh, writer of Fintech Business Weekly and advisor and consultant to early to mid-stage fintech startups. Alex, who the fuck are you? Alex Johnson, <laughs> great question. Um, I, like Jason, write a, a newsletter. Mine's called Fintech Takes and it's focused on the intersection of finance, technology, banking, a little bit of crypto. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a way where it's a way that a lot of people learn is my <laughs> experience. Well, so this is actually kind of the fun part of this conversation is the, both of you have been in this industry for a very long time, but I feel like both of you have hit like that, that tipping point over like the last couple of years, maybe where your, your personal brands have kind of uh, taken, taken a step into the public light. Like as before we were, before you got here, Jason, Alex and I were talking about how it was like a year and a half ago, two years ago, I had no clue at all who you were. <laughs> and now you're like one of the main names in FinTech, Jason, same for you, honestly. So my question is, I mean, like we'll get into how you got there, but what's that been like? Has it just been weird, especially coming out of the, coming out of COVID and like meeting people in person? Has it just been bizarre to have people recognize you? Are people recognizing you? At uh, Money 2020 in, in Vegas last October, which was still like COVID-y, like people were supposed to be wearing masks. Yeah. And yeah. I definitely had a handful of people come up to me and be like, are you Jason from Twitter? And I'm like, yes, but I have no idea who you are. Uh, either because you're wearing a mask and I can't see your face or just because I really don't know who you are. Uh, so there has been a little bit of that, but usually like it's really um, almost easier because you kind of feel like, you know, people already from interacting on Twitter, on LinkedIn, you know, listening to, to them on podcasts. And then when you meet them in person, you're like, Oh, like, I feel like I already know you. That's a hundred percent. Yeah. My experience too. It's, um, weird when you get recognized by people you've never met before. And I remember texting my wife that that happened. Same thing in money 2020, not a lot, but like a couple of times. And she's like, are you famous? I'm like in a super, super, super small circle of people mildly. Yes. And she's like, well, that's just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. So it is a very surreal feeling. Um, it's obviously, it feels good that, um, you know, people, follow me and read my stuff, but it is, you know, to Jason's point, I think really cool to be able to build relationships and be a part of the community around FinTech online before you ever get to meet them. Cause then once you meet them, it's immediately into having fun, getting to jump to social stuff and you've sort of already done the homework in advance. Yeah. At least like knowing that you want to talk to them. Right. Like I still want my next question for you guys is like how you got into fintech and why and all that, because I've seen you since, you know, you've kind of become a little notoriety, a little fintech fame has happened. Um, but it's a I don't know, it's just a very bizarre shift and it's like the least sexy way to be famous. So it's 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 weird. <laughs> it's weird. Well, it's, it's weird because it's like you you're embracing being a nerd basically, yeah. right? Like to me, that's like been the path to FinTech fame is just like nerding out as much as possible and doing it in public, doing it on Twitter, doing it on your newsletter, doing it on your podcast. And the more you sort of nerd out, the more other FinTech nerds kind yeah. of flock to you and you're like, oh, I'd love to pick your brain on, you know, FICO nine versus FICO eight. And you're like, great, you're the first person who's ever said that to me, but like, let's do it, you know? And so it's pretty fun to be able to sort of double down into those areas just based on, you know, kind of being a nerd and being passionate about the topic. Totally. Totally. And I feel like it's like a, the opposite of high school. It's like all the shit that you do in FinTech now is <laughs> that would have like made you the kid alone at a lunch table, like, and everybody just utterly scared just to speak to you. Cause it would run their social life is actually like just how FinTech works well now. 
Well, it's, it's uh, you know, the cool version of banking, right? Like yeah. banking, boring, old school. Yeah, they're at the like table by themselves. That's right. <laughs> oh, but fintech, yeah. Like, yeah, that's where the cool kids are. So how did you guys get into it? I mean, did, did you come from the classical direction into it or I, I don't know either. I know your history a little bit, Jason, cause we talked like three weeks ago, but honestly I have a lot of calls and I've forgotten most of it more. So remember what you're doing now. Yeah. I mean the, uh, the short answer was for the health insurance. Uh, the long- Fair enough. What were you I doing? Mean, but were you just stripping kids. before that? What were you doing? <laughs> no, the longer answer is I had been uh, living in the British West Indies where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Oh, and this is like, 2008 to 2010. Uh, and while I was there, I kind of like expanded slash self-taught, um, you know, sort of the digital marketing tools of the day, which was like SEO, search engine optimization, Google ads, affiliates. When I moved back to Chicago after Peace Corps, I freelanced for a while. Eventually I was like, oh, this is America. I need health insurance. <laughs> uh, and I got recruited by you know, uh, a company that really did fintech before fintech was like a term, um, Enova, which is in the small dollar lending space near Prime. And now a lot of SMB lending with their acquisition of OnDeck Capital uh, like a year or two ago. Oh, and so now you know, this I, rings a bell. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I came in as a marketer, you know, not knowing anything about financial services, specifically not having any, not having any background, any academic background in financial services whatsoever. So it was really like, Let's say I'm I'm on a continuing twelve year journey of learning financial services. But yeah, that was the the starting point. Do you feel like it was like a blessing at all not to have had that schooling? Um Do you wish you had had it? Not necessarily. I mean, if there was an area that I wish I had a, a deeper like academic understanding of, it would be like the software engineering and product management disciplines. Yeah. You know, obviously the finance stuff like is important. Um but, you know, so much of where the, you know, the innovation is happening is in those disciplines, right? Like doing capital market strategy or, you know, creating credit policies. Like, yeah, the, the tooling for that has changed. Um, but I really feel like the, uh, I guess, like the cutting edge, like discipline at most fintech companies, they're product led and or engineering led organizations more than those other functions. If they're doing it right. Yes. <laughs> Alex, how'd you get into it? Yeah. Mine's a very similar story to Jason's in that it was kind of FinTech before FinTech was a thing. So for me, I started, I'm from Bozeman, Montana and not exactly like a FinTech hub. And so there happened to be one company uh, one tech company in town called Zoot Enterprises that does uh, cloud-based kind of credit decisioning and loan origination and digital account opening. And they started in 1990. And so um, when I was 16 years old and in high school, I got an internship working in the marketing department at Zoot. And, you know, when you're 16, you don't know anything about anything, like not financial <laughs> services, not how to like load paper into a copy machine, not how to write an email. So like literally starting from ground zero or below ground and um, I started in marketing too. And, um, you know, one of my first jobs was to um, launch their blog and start writing for their blog. And, uh, 
you know, I think at the time, um, Brett King was really like making a lot of noise about like the branches are going away. And of course, as a stupid, you know, 16 year old that decided to like pick a fight online with Brett King going, well, no branches are going to stay and all this stuff and be like <laughs> contrary and then have the opposite taken. Of course I was like dead wrong. And he was of course, right. But it was really fun to be able to, to kind of write about the space. And I think for me, at least again, not having any background in financial services, I just sort of had to write about it in order to learn about it and um, kind of built my knowledge of financial services brick by brick. And there are still many, many bricks to be built, but that's kind of where it started. Yeah. There's, there's not an end to this journey. Is there, I mean, kind of no matter what, like I, I have yet to meet anybody that even 80, 90 been in financial services their whole life. Well, I guess you can't keep up with the technology in a lot of ways, but it doesn't seem like it's possible to know even a most of everything. It's, it's amazing. I mean, one of the experiences I had that sort of, um, drove that home for me is after I had worked at, at Zoot for more than a decade, um, so all the way through school and then full-time after I graduated, um, I got a job, uh, as an analyst at uh, a small payments analyst firm, uh, based out of Boston. And I was working on credit card research and I had like kind of dabbled in credit card and gotten to know it a little bit from the outside. And they're like, yeah, come on in. You'll lead all of our credit card research. And within like a week, I realized I knew nothing about credit cards. I knew nothing about payments or like the payments infrastructure in the U S and spent two years working there, basically getting a master's in payments and, you know, getting paid to do it at the same time, which is really nice. But, um, you know, I mean, it was really shocking the degree to which, again, as like a 21 year old, I'm like, oh yeah, I think I, you know, I think I know how this works. Like I got credit cards, no big deal. Turns out my knowledge of credit card was like this tiny amount and there was so much more to learn. And I feel like every time I collide with a new topic in financial services, it's like, yeah, I knew this much, but there's so, so much more to learn and it would take years to learn it all. And then there's like, Massive variation by market. So how yeah exactly yeah and operate in the U.S. is going to be totally different than the Netherlands or Mexico or you know Southeast Asia, China, etc. So I mean yeah. I, I can't imagine you know ever feeling like you have a great understanding on how these things work, like in every market that they're operating. Yeah. In. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Were we recording when we discussed the fact that you live in Amsterdam? I don't know if, I don't think we were recording at that uh, point. No, I, I don't, don't think so. Know, yeah. But yeah, so it must be a total mindfuck for you. I mean, just like the amount of the amount, just the way that Europe works plus traveling over here. I'm sure it's like a, well, I mean, a lot. I, uh, most of my work is still focused on the U S market. So I, I, some of these things about the Netherlands, I uh, learn by experiencing them <laughs> as a consumer. Right. So, I mean, like my favorite anecdote is when I was, um, visiting there before I moved there, it's like uh, a lot of the grocery stores or a lot of stores in general, you know, don't accept visa or MasterCard. Really? And I'm in line at Albert Hein, like trying to buy whatever. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, I have no cash because I was coming from the UK. So yeah. I don't have any euros. And I guess I've always had cash. This, is, my, this is a mind fuck for me. But I guess I've always had euros. And they take, uh, Maestro, which is like the sister network to MasterCard. And I forget if it's Visa Electron or, you know, some other like Visa sister network that have uh, like a flat two cents interchange. I'm like, oh, so you don't accept my cards because the interchange is too high and right. you have a really margin sensitive business. And so like you accept these other cards, which everyone here has. Um, or uh, when uh, my partner and I were buying our house, there's a credit bureau, but it, it doesn't work at all the same way. It's more of like uh, just a record of the debts you have. So 
there's essentially an assumption that if you have no record there, like no information whatsoever, that you will pay. As that, opposed wow. to the U.S. where you need to, yeah, demonst- is, you need to demonstrate. Inverse. You need to demonstrate a willingness to pay. So, I mean, as, you know, recent immigrants of the country, you know, you can finance 100% loan to value on a house and they will give you a mortgage when you essentially have no credit history, which I was just like, my mind exploded. I think Alex and I need a minute. Yeah, seriously. We might need to move there. What? Or at least like start a real estate business there. Seriously. (laughs) Let's do the next 2008 in Amsterdam. This is going to be great. (laughs) Let's double down. We all need eight mortgages. (laughs) What what drove you to move out there? Uh, It was for personal reasons. My, uh, my partner moved there for work. So I, uh, I followed. That's not a, not a bad place to follow. Not a bad place to follow. I'm curious. Both of you, I, I've had this happen even a couple times over the last last couple of days. The the perspective that I have of you two is that you know you're you're thought leaders. So I don't think there's any. I mean, whatever you two can disagree if you want because you're humble individuals. But I view the two of you as thought leaders because I follow your thoughts. Do you ever run into the moment where people, because of your thought leadershipy things, just assume you know everything, and then you have to educate them on the fact that you're also human? Like how oh, do you yeah. guys handle that? 100%. That happens all the time. I mean, a big one for me where that happens is people will reach out and they're like, Hey, I'd love to talk to you about like the company that we're building. Right. So it's a lot of like early stage founders and they have these ideas and like they live these problems, right? Like right. every day and they like know it backwards, forwards, the whole thing. And so then you're like, okay, yeah, you know, tell me what you're doing and kind of what problem you're solving and how it works. And within the first like two minutes, you can just tell like they're in a totally different stratosphere in terms of their understanding of this topic. But because they, you know, maybe read my newsletter or follow me on Twitter or whatever, they sort of have this uh, assumption that's not at all correct that like, I'll be able to keep up with what they're talking about. And it's like, I have to stop and be like, I honestly, I don't know anything about commercial lending. So you're going to have to like slow down to like 10 miles an hour and like walk me through it. And then, you know, you spend the rest of the time trying to have some helpful insight or something to share to at least make their time worth it. But, you know, I think it is definitely something where I have to slam on the brakes a lot. And, you know, one of the things that's cool about kind of building in public, learning in public is the ability to be pretty candid about, you know, I don't know everything. I don't know about this. Teach me about this. I'm happy to be wrong about this. And one thing I like about the FinTech ecosystem is generally people are pretty understanding about that. And so it makes it a much safer place, I think, to uh, admit when you don't know stuff, which of course we all have huge gaps. Yeah. There's FinTech newsletters that are quite famous that actually neither of yours, um, well, all of ours actually, literally all of ours, but a couple that I'm thinking of that I won't name that are like maybe 50% inaccurate on a regular basis. And it's just like, I, I'm just going to let them have it. Like, you know, because they're going through a process. I hope no one's taking this as gospel, but like they're learning and they're growing. And it's not like I know everything, but just, you know, you work in a bank for long enough or you work in payments or you work in credit or whatever. And you're like, I know that thing. And I know that's wrong. The rest of this, I don't know, but that thing I know. Well, no, I mean, that that's a great point. Whenever I'm writing about something that is outside of like, my areas of expertise. I'm always like hyper cognizant. Totally. Like, I don't want to write something uh, or, you know, sort of make, make some conclusion or some argument or, or, you know, cite some erroneous facts and like have it be totally wrong. Right. So, I mean, you know, I don't know a ton about the sort of like emerging identity space. Like I'm interested in it. And so that's why, you know, I'll, I'll read about it and like to sort of comment in that space, but it's like, I'm not an expert and, and I'm, I'm always very aware of that. If I, if, when, when I'm sort of like 
creating content in spaces outside of sort of my core competency. It's scary to write about stuff that you are not like a deep, deep expert. And I'm the same way. Like there's one or two areas where I feel like I can go kind of blow for blow with most people, but there's a ton that I write about where it's like, like I wrote about mortgage servicing a while back because it was really annoying me as a consumer. I was like, I have to write about this. I swear I spent nine months doing research and talking to people about it because I was just so cognizant of the fact that it's a deeply complex space where I didn't even know what most of the terminology meant. And I finally was able to scratch out something that I think made sense and was a good starting place. But even that I'm sure has a bunch of little inaccuracies that people are just being nice about not throwing in my face. It's really hard to write about these areas. Mortgage is a great example of like the so, so hard to understand that world. And mm-hmm. so much of it's illogical, right? Like the idea that you can't do a loan in less than two weeks and things like, like these just kind of arcane rules mm-hmm. that we're just supposed to accept and take as logic for some reason. It doesn't, I mean, this, that's the issue, I guess, with half of it is it doesn't make sense. And that's why I appreciate both your perspectives often is because you come at it with a sarcastic tone on the things that don't make sense. But <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre perspective for people to have that we know shit for me. Totally. It just it continues to confuse me every time I come back to a conference on a regular basis. Anyways. So you two have, done some interesting things together over like the guest last few months. How long have you guys been doing the podcast together? Since money 2020. That's right. We did our, that's uh, right. You launched it. That was our inaugural. You launched it. That's right. The money, money pot, money booth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at, uh, it was the money pot booth. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you nailed it. At, at, in Vegas. Yeah. So was that like six months then? Something like that? Uh, that sounds right. Six, seven. Yeah. 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 Round, round numbers. Yeah. We'll say ish. Yeah. Um, so how did kind of, how did this relationship start? Uh, maybe we should, I don't know if we've actually talked about your individual sub stacks yet. So we should talk about, about that piece and like how you guys decided to start those. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, uh, I started mine, um, I think roughly around the same time that Jason started his. So in, in the same general time zone. And for me, it was, um, definitely a side project while I was working full time, uh, at a different job. And part of my responsibilities were, um, keeping tabs on everything happening in fintech. And I just felt constantly behind. And so I needed some way to like force myself to just keep track of what was going on in fintechs. And that's why I called my newsletter fintech takes is because I wanted to force myself to come up with takes on what was happening in fintech. So I could have some perspective to share and there's no better pressure than publishing a newsletter on a regular basis as Jason uh, knows really well, because you know, you're just like, okay, it's Sunday night, like time to buckle down. Like we have to have a take, you have to have an opinion. And normally there is some take or something hiding in all of these different topics, but it takes a while sometimes to find it. So it was a really good forcing function for doing that. And it kind of just grew from there. I really had no expectations that people outside my company were going to read it or that a lot of other people would be interested in it, but, um, kind of started there. What, what year was this? This was, uh, 2020. 2020. Yeah. Oh, okay. Damn. You got in my head, you guys were writing before that's wild. Um, you guys no, have had a, quite a trajectory is like, honestly, kind of a pandemic hobby. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was October, 2020, yep. you know, the weather, uh, in Amsterdam in the fall and winter is not super nice. Um, and everything was closed for like six months. Like literally like six months, like nothing was open besides like, uh, you know, critical, critical shops. And so I was like, okay, I should do something productive and not just binge watch Netflix. 
Um, at so least balance yeah, the two. Balance. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't give up Netflix. Yeah, like you still clear. need Ozark. It's yeah, part yeah. of the fintech world. You know, it's you really still got to watch the money laundering shows. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was really kind of the impetus. And, and I mean, a similar set of like things I wanted to get out of it. You know, it was like, okay, this is going to help me sort of like digest and frame my own thoughts about stuff I'm seeing in the ecosystem, right? I mean, even particularly there was one I wrote early on about, of course, buy now, pay later. Yeah. When it was like first, like, really blowing up and you know i was seeing like the way that people were using terminology um it was like not not taking into account there's actually like a variety of different products here with different business models yeah. and like different companies and i'm like okay like this feels like somewhere where i know enough and i can add value by like doing an in-depth explainer of like what's happening here like what are the different models how should you think about it? I still reference that piece. It's like now pretty old and yet it's like sort of, I think the foundational piece for explaining like what is paying for versus point, point of sale lending and like, what are the differences there? And until you wrote that, there really wasn't a piece in the industry making that distinction clear, but it's so important for understanding everything that happens in buy now pay later is looking at it through that lens. So it's a pretty cool, like foundational piece. And how, did you go from you two individually doing this? You're stuck in a house or a, a something. You're, you're stuck on a canal in, in Amsterdam. You're <laughs> a in, field of tulips somewhere. You're in Bozeman with some elk. Yep. And uh, how how did this come together? Was it? Did, I'm guessing the world was kind of moving back in the direction of opening, and that's why you kind of did the Vegas thing. Like how did how did this idea come together? How did this come together? <laughs> so okay, if I'm remembering right, what happened I got was, hammered. Yeah, Alex says, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was out late one night, and I just had this idea. No, I mean it was. Um, I, I obviously subscribed to Jason's newsletter long before we started doing the podcast, and uh, was a big fan of his writing and just his approach to looking at the market. And so um, I think what happened is I reached out to him and just asked, like, hey, would you ever want to just hop on a podcast and just, you know, kind of shoot the shit on like news and fintech. And, uh, he very graciously said yes and agreed to, to do one with me. And then at roughly the same time that that happened, uh, money 2020 reached out and we're like, Hey, um, we love your podcast. And I was like, well, I don't actually have a podcast. And uh, they were like, well, um, would you like to have a podcast? And I was like, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. Like, I, your I, life funny. is forcing functions. <laughs> totally, yeah. So it's like, um, well, yeah, you know, that, that sounds good, I guess. And so um, and that happened to me. Happened. And then Jason. Uh, the, yeah, I also uh, got an email from the organizers being like, would you want to record your podcast on site? <laughs> I'm like, I don't have a podcast. But I guess we could have one. We could so, have a podcast. So it was, it was just like you have a sub stack, therefore we lump you into the podcaster realm. That's exactly what happened. And so it's like, you know, I, I'm very flattered that you like my thoughts and would like to hear them in an audio format. So <laughs> at like the same time that Jason and I both get these emails independently from Money 2020, I had reached out to him about just doing kind of something together on the on the podcast front. And uh, all the pieces kind of aligned for us to do the first uh, fintech recap episode directly from uh, Las Vegas, which was a really fun experience. Yeah. I mean, it was the last day, so I, I was pretty tired. Uh, yeah, totally. I, <laughs> after after three days of, you know, 7,000 plus people and trying to navigate the Venetian, I, I was just like completely worn out. And yet it was also like there was a ton of news to discuss. There were all kinds of like fun announcements happening at the show. So it was a great way to to kick it off. And then we've been doing it every month since. And it's a cool way to kind of recap the last month of craziness in fintech. 
what have you learned about like creating and podcasting and I don't know, like interviewing in that? I mean, I guess you're not really, you're interviewing each other, you're conversating, but what have any interesting takeaways in that shift from written to audio? What do you got? Um, <laughs> so I mean, before, got? before we started, you know, I, I had been a guest on other people's podcasts. Yeah. Um, Welcome. You know, a handful of times and never this one until now, never this one until now. Um, he's and, just and, been trying to get here. Right, 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 right. This is the pinnacle right <laughs> here. Is, if this is the pinnacle, you should jump off the building. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I had, I'd say varying experiences. Some were like very highly scripted and in a sense that was easy, but then like the output when you heard it, like frankly, like didn't sound great. And then some of them were like much more, much less produced sort of just like, you know, bullet points and have a conversation. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's basically the approach we've taken yeah. of like, okay, what are the things we want to talk about? What are, you know, like the main factual points, if it's like a news item or a product launch or a blockchain getting hacked for $600 million. Mm -hmm. And then my like, favorite story, you know, <laughs> summarize, you know, what actually happened to provide the context and then like provide the analysis or the hot take on, you know, on top of it. Did you, did you have any inspiration for it? Or go ahead, Alex, what were you going to say? Well, no, I mean, I, I think kind of building on the, the inspiration point, I mean, I think the best podcast ones I most enjoy listening to are the ones where you can tell that the people are just sort of having a conversation and it's more, you just get to sit in the room with them while they have the conversation. And so honestly, that was a lot of the inspiration for why I reached out to Jason specifically is, I mean, obviously I didn't know him super well at the time, I had read his stuff for a long time. We'd interacted a few times, a lot on Twitter, but I could just sort of tell, like, it'd be easy to have a conversation with him. And it's funny because we've been doing it now for six months or so. And, you know, we spoke together at the New York FinTech week this week and, uh, when they asked us what we wanted to talk about, we picked credit because it's like our favorite topic to dive deep into. But um, when we uh, when we were figuring out the format, they're like, do you want to have slides? Do you want to do like something kind of more formal? And we were just like, why, why don't we just get on stage and talk about it? And so we basically did the podcast, just kind of bantering back and forth on stage. And I mean, maybe people hated it. It was kind of hard to tell from up there, but um, it, did you it was have easy fun? to do. Yeah, it was fun. Cool. Did it seem like the crowd had fun? Like they were nodding their heads and at least halfway paying the attention. Were so bright. I couldn't actually, see I know, anything. I know there might not have actually been anyone in there. We're not a hundred percent sure. It might've just been us yeah. in an empty room, but um, it well, was super fun. I'm jealous of that because I, I opened that morning or no, I was like the second thing that morning and we were doing a debate on web three. And I think I literally screamed at the crowd like four times. I was like, we're doing a debate. This is like, this requires a little bit of fucking energy. I need you to wake up. It was amazing. You were like bringing oh, the energy. Oh, I was, in there, yeah. And just like for people who weren't there, Zach came in and was like, we're doing this thing, people. And he's like clapping his hands and there's like all kinds of like energy on stage and the crowd's just giving him nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing. It was, I've never done stand up, but I think that's what it feels like to bomb. <laughs> <laughs> 9.30 a.m. at a fintech conference is not it was, inspiring. No, it was amazing. <laughs> I'm glad. There's, there's something nice about like a, a more candid format. I mean, I, I've i like tried my hand at playing interviewer in a, in, in a sort of more structured way. Yeah. Like not, a, not for podcasts, but for like my written stuff. Yeah. And I mean, especially depending on like who you're talking to and how many PR people and lawyers they have with that. Totally. <laughs> yeah, um, it gets uninteresting it, fast. It, 
you know, the format doesn't always, particularly if it's over Zoom, doesn't always lend itself to like getting novel information or or even sort of like context and tone. It it just becomes like very formal. Um, so I mean, I think you know, for uh, something that is a mixture between um, informative and and entertainment, right? Like people listen to podcasts because it's entertaining. Yep. I think hopefully, um, <laughs> you know, you want to have something that's like a little bit more engaging. Yeah, I I think that's the thing that I appreciate about you guys handling the podcast that way is that I there's nothing that frustrates me more than a podcast that could have been an email. <laughs> And like you guys do the email, but then the podcast is a podcast, right? Like you separate the mediums in a way that is actually very helpful. And I think the there's just nothing worse for podcasting than like not being yourself or like reading off. It's just like, and the money 2020 podcast is actually pretty heavily scripted and I like it. I think it's really good, but I think it's for, I think it's for a different set of people that are probably going to listen to this. In a lot of cases, it's like a person that's trying, they have 15 minutes on the train. They're trying to learn a thing. So, and it's like, you know, Adam Grant's great and certain people or the daily from New York times or whatever, like they all exist for a reason, but I don't know for me in the FinTech space, we need more fucking humanity because everybody is just like, it's just so uptight. The comms people, I mean, it's just like the more that you can actually get people to share their opinion emotionally, it yeah. feels like we can change a lot more about the actual industry. Well, and there's something about, I don't know why this comes across so clearly, but I think it does both in written and in like podcast form is if you're not having fun doing it, yeah. the people can tell they just can. Right. Yeah. And like, I, I find this in my written stuff too. We're all like, write about a topic. Cause I feel like I have to, and it's very dutiful. And I turn my homework in and I publish it and people are just like, Oh my God, that sucked. Like that was terrible. <laughs> Who, who's, who's, who's bullying you online? Who's telling you, uh, remember <laughs> that he's pretty close with Ron Chevlin. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's right. <laughs> Okay. Fair, fair. Hey, the, Ron will like like stuff and be like, "This is brilliant," and then he'll totally roast me online. Over it's like, dude, you like the post. I know you like the post, so that's a totally different relationship. But he can't say nice things. That's no, not why he no. gets out of bed in the morning. It's not the vibe. Yeah. So, um, so no, I mean, it's it's funny how like the more you have fun writing about a topic and. You know, for me, it's like stuffing in like pop culture references into the stuff that I write or doing the podcast and kind of, you know, Jason and I do kind of a um, can't let it go segment at the end where we like focus on stories that we're kind of obsessed with that are tangentially related to fintech, but are more just like we can't let go of these stories. That to me is the fun stuff and the stuff that I think kind of brings people back and makes them want to listen. Totally. And yeah, I mean, I think you guys have personalities that also lend themselves to audio. I think that's the other thing is like finding your medium there's a lot of incredibly smart people in our industry that, and also this is, I think it's the other piece of like why it's fucking three white dudes sitting in a room. You know, there's, it's the most painful part of it is the desire to like push people out to create, but like not everybody should have a podcast, right? Like there's a lot of like very deep thinkers that should have sub stacks. And then there's a lot of like, maybe not the best voice, but like very expressive. They should have a YouTube channel and I don't know. I don't, just, I don't even know if there's a question there, but it's just like, God damn it. Could it just be like slightly more diverse than it is right now? Because it's like this, it's just a echo chamber of white dudes at this point, And it's painful as we I, sit I in a totally room of agree. white dudes. Yep. No, I mean, it's, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, one of the, one of the people we should shout out that I've started listening to lately is Nicole Casperson at what the FinTech. And one of the reasons I like what she's doing is, um, 
she's a woman, she's a woman of color. Um, she has a very different perspective on FinTech than I do, or that I think a lot of other people who have sort of established platforms do. And she goes out of her way in almost all of her guests to make sure there's a lot of diversity and inclusion of different voices in it. And I think we need a lot more of those, not that there's not room for this podcast and our podcast and a bunch of others, but the more of those we have, like I learn a ton every time I listen to it. And I, I really appreciate that seems like we're getting better, even though it's slow. Yeah. It's not going to change overnight, but, but it's also thinking about different points of diversity, right? Like it's like, sure. We're three white guys in a room, but we're three white guys with very different perspectives, with very different upbringings and very different current lives as well. Like Mm -hmm. your life in Montana, maybe slightly different than your life in the Netherlands and certain things like that. I would mention probably a little bit. Yeah. 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 And other pieces of life, like how you grew up. Like I grew up very poor basically and mm-hmm. grew up on the black side of the town or black side of Kansas city. And like, didn't have my first white friend until I was like 12. Right. But when people meet me, they're like six foot three white guy. I bet you went to like Harvard or something. And I was like, I went to a state school and I almost didn't finish. So it's like the perspective and the perception of the whole thing is, is very interesting. Zach and Jason are also very tall for anyone who hasn't met them in person. Yeah. Cause you're so. short. Alex. Yeah. So it's like, I, I'm used to being tall and now I'm like the short one amongst all of the, are, I think podcasts. we're all the same height. Actually, are we all like six two, six three? We we stood back to back last night, and the consensus was that I was a little bit taller. That's true. I hate to admit it, but it was true. All right, everybody, this is not a video podcast, but let's see it. Let's see you two back to back, and then we're gonna do. We're we're gonna get weird here. I think that we. Jesus Christ, that is exact. Wow, is it? Did we tie? There's no. There's not even an inch of difference. I mean, Jason (laughs) kind of maybe wins because of the. It's got good posture. It's the hair. It's the the hair a little bit with the the. It's it's voluminous. I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. This is this perfectly equal, guys. I mean, next time we're gonna have to take the shoes off, do the whole thing, get a yardstick out. Yeah, we need more official measuring devices. That's what fintech needs is more (laughs) official measuring devices. So, what do you guys see as the the future of what you're doing? I mean, do you just kind of keep plodding ahead? Do you keep just kind of going month after month? Do you? I mean, I'm pretty content right now for the most part. I mean, I balance like writing and publishing with also consulting and advising. And so it's like a good mixture. I mean, I find that there are few people in the space who only do the media, yeah. right? Like usually if it's a podcast or a Substack or, or what have you, it's in service of like some other objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like in my case, it's like, okay, you know, thinking and writing publicly also serves to like drive consulting and advising business. And they're sort of mutually reinforcing. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about, you know, would I be open to a full-time role? And, you know, I don't say no, I say, you know, <laughs> the right, the right company, the right team, the right yeah. product, the right offer. Like I, I, I would consider it. So do you want to keep writing? <clears throat> Sorry. Do you want to keep writing? Do you want to get back into like the, the world of product? Like, would you join an early stage startup if they came at you with the right thought and idea? It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, third, third time's the charm. Fourth time's the charm. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the odds Startups. are really not on your favor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's more it's like 10th really time the charm, but sure. <laughs> go for it. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't rule it out. Like, um, I mean, for, for right now, like, you know, writing has, has, been a really great vehicle to like build connections and, and network. And I kind of enjoy that, like just for the sake of doing it. Right. Yeah. You know, when I worked, um, as a full-time employee with a single role, you know, 95% 
of my time, attention, bandwidth, you know, was within those four walls. And um, it really doesn't leave a lot of room to connect with people who might like think differently, have different opinions, different perspectives, different experiences. Um, and so I do miss, you know, some of the like office camaraderie of having coworkers and, and, you know, being friendly with them and going to office happy hour, et cetera. Um, but in some ways it was also like limiting because it's like, okay, when I was at like lend up or at Goldman, it takes up 98% of your field of vision. And so you're not paying attention to, you know, what's happening with the bureaus or the regulatory and policy environment. Yeah. Like, what's this crazy web three thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like all your time and attention is going to work work. Yeah. It's, it's such an obvious thing, but I think so few people understand that like the fearless leader, Scarlett Sieber, uh, here at money 2020, like she is at a point now where like she has to work so hard. I mean, she just wrote a book, so she's clearly on top <laughs> of shit, but she has to work so hard that it's almost like she's figured out this cheat code of just like hiring people to keep her up on shit. You know, like she keeps a team around her. That's like, this is what to pay attention next. This is what to pay. And then she does the work at night and she like keeps up on it herself. But like she has hired a group of filters to do it yeah. for her. Mm -hmm. And I li I don't think that she with a child and everything else, like could do anything near what she does if she didn't have that. And I don't think that people often understand the amount of work it takes to just be aware of like what happened today or this week. And I mean, that's the beauty of your monthly thing, but it's, it's a full-time job to stay up on these things. Which yeah, no. maybe me leads me to, I don't, I don't know what you're allowed to share at this point. Well, I'm going to be writing my newsletter uh, more frequently uh, is what I'll say at the moment. But uh, I, you know, I, I would echo what Jason said. I mean, it's, it's the networking point is a really good one, right? Which is um, before when I would go to like conferences or whatever, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, go to the happy hour, go network. And it's like, you were just starting from zero and I'm kind of an introvert anyway. And so it just, it like sucked. It was terrible. And I was, I was really bad at it. And, you know, when writing the newsletter, you know, to your point, it, it causes so many like random interactions to happen. People reach out via email, they hit you up on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, which is actually a slightly higher signal place than it used to be for me now that there's like actual good content that people are responding to. Um, and then you run into people like at events and you're not starting from zero because you've been basically like you think about it in an online dating way, like you've been updating your dating profile every single time you write your newsletter or do a podcast. And so you're constantly like giving people a little bit of a view into how you think about stuff. And it just makes building relationships and getting to know people in the ecosystem and uncovering new job opportunities and all of those things so much easier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, one of the most satisfying parts of it is starting to use whatever small amount of influence I have to then help other people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of people who connect with me who may, they're working on a startup, but they don't really have kind of a crystal clear idea yet, or they're struggling to get uh, funding or, you know, someone that works for a bank and wants to join a FinTech company, but they've applied to 10 and they haven't gotten a single call back. And so trying to help those people, because of like the position that you get by like writing the newsletter and doing podcasts, that's pretty cool. Um, even though, you know, there's not necessarily a monetization opportunity attached to it, it just feels good to help people. Mm -hmm. And so that's been one of the things I've really liked about doing it. And I find that the more frequently you create content and kind of put yourself out there, the more of those good opportunities kind of come back. Yeah. And the more frequently you help people, the more frequently you get paid a frequent amount of money. Like in my experience, if you just forget about the money piece and then you go like help people and the add value and whatever, after. the money just fucking just kind of finds it. And then 
you know, it's, I welcome you money to come find me more, but like <laughs> at this point, you know, it's, it's seems to be working out to just be a halfway decent human and like carry on in public. That's it. Yeah. So what advice would you guys have for just kind of that, that banker moving into FinTech thing is yeah. a, a thing I associate with. I went from FinTech to banking to, Oh fuck back to FinTech. Um, <laughs> but what, what advice do you guys have for folks that are trying to, I guess twofold one break into FinTech and two break into creating. I mean, I would say for, for breaking into FinTech and it's interesting that you phrased the question that way, because when somebody asks me that, I'll often turn around the question and say, what does that mean to you? Like, what is it, you know, like when you say yeah. get into FinTech, like what, what is that? Right. Yeah. Um, because at this point, that's a really good, really good point. Um, you know, a lot of large banks would have, you know, yeah. internal innovation teams, right. you know, obviously, you know, my old employer, Goldman built Marcus referred to it as a FinTech. Um, uh, <laughs> no shade in that voice. <laughs> yeah. shifts. No shade. You should have seen his face at that time. He said, um, <laughs> I think so you yeah, read his voice, <laughs> I think, you know, sort of uh, getting clarification of like, if that's your career goal, you know, does that mean, you know, an early stage startup? Does it mean a specific product category? So, you know, consumer or, you know, B2B, like working at, you know, Plaid is going to be really different than working at Chime, like totally different products serving and selling into totally different markets. So, I mean, I think like the first thing I usually do is sort of push a little bit and be like, what do you mean when you say you want to get into FinTech? Yeah. And from there, you know, you can sort of be more helpful at providing specific advice. And then also like what kind of role, right? Yeah. Apparently we yeah. were both marketers. And so it's a good one know, I entered with. that world through a digital marketing skill set without necessarily knowing anything about like the mechanics of the product I was selling. Yeah. Um, that's going to be really different if you're, you know, a software product manager or an engineer or, you know, somebody who has like a, a finance and accounting background. Um, so it's like, what do you mean when you say you want to get into FinTech? And then is there a specific, um, sort of skill set or like job profile you're looking for. And then that's going to guide yeah. what companies are going to be a good fit for you. It's a really good point. I've never heard anybody say, I just want to break into insure tech. And it's like, that's not a sentence I've ever heard. I haven't even really heard it about any other industry. Maybe I'm just too deep in FinTech and that's just my life, but it's, it's a very good point. There, it's maybe it's just, the, is it just the VC money you think that draws people to say sentences like that? I mean, I guess it's good branding. Yeah. Good job, everybody. Well, it's, it's funny. <laughs> like we've all done it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We That's made right. it. Yes. Success. <laughs> These college graduates, they want yeah, us now. Yeah, um, thanks, John Zanoff. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it's funny too, because I think the other question I push back on a little bit with people kind of to that point is like, why? You know what I mean? And for people, and, and not that I try to, um, you know, segment who I help, but I, I do look at the why question pretty seriously, because if your answer is some version of, well, you know, one out of every five uh, VC dollars invested last year globally went into fintech, oh, like that's fuck a you. bad answer. Like, <laughs> like if you're chasing money or you want to like have, you know, a career that's in like a hot field, you know, A, that's kind of a bad motivation and B, like fintech is that now? It probably won't be that forever in the future, right? I mean, I remember when financial services was deeply uncool and it probably will be deeply uncool at some point in the future. I, you know, Web3 and crypto is already sort of coming for fintech in that respect. And 
I get called TradFi if I go to the wrong conferences. And yeah, so it's- that hurts. It's, it hurts, right? Like I used to be <laughs> Does cool. Does it hurt? Now I'm not cool anymore. No, it's 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 <clears throat> fine. I, I just, you know, joke about regulations that they haven't heard yet and then we move on. But um, it is really interesting because- Me too. <laughs> the people who, you know, I, I like to, to help get jobs in fintech, they have a good answer to that question. It's, well, it's deeply personal to me because I want to solve this problem or because it looks like a place I can help people. There's so many- unsolved problems still that if they look at fintech and go, wow, that's a place where there is money, there is opportunity, and I can use those tools to solve a problem and help people, then I'm happy to narrow in on like, okay, B2C, B2B, what stage company? And there's lots of ways to help navigate that. But I think why and motivation is is super important. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right that these, um, this stuff is, is cyclical and trend driven, yeah, right? Yeah. Like there was a period where, you know, everyone was leaving whatever investment banking and management consulting to head out to San Francisco to join fintechs. Right. And, and now, now if you say that my, you, you work at meta, it's like, oh my God, like you're blacklisted. From it's all these so parts much worse so. than working at Goldman. It is no offense, so much Jason. worse. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted um, to work at Goldman when I was a kid, just for the record. <laughs> uh, I was when I wanted when I was a kid. So I grew, I grew up really poor. My dad went bankrupt when I was a kid. And when I got basically to college, I did an internship at Merrill Lynch. At that point, I thought mm-hmm. I wanted to be an open outcry trader. So I just thought okay. I wanted to come and yell at people on Wall Street. And then I was was like, no, Goldman Sachs. And I don't really even know why. I think I was just like <laughs> money because I've never had any. And then I got to Merrill Lynch and then we went from selling everybody index funds to going to a lunch with this woman from SunTrust. And she was like, you can make 3% selling annuities. And then we went back to the office and sold annuities to 22 year olds. And I was like, this is not okay. <laughs> and then I decided I wanted to actually do something good for the world of finance. But it's, yeah, I, I used to think, and I also think that the, you know, the culture shifting and whatever, I'm not going to shit on Goldman too hard here, but, no, but I mean, yeah. it's cyclical, right? Like crypto, uh, crypto, then DeFi, yep. web three. Yep. And it feels like the pace of the change is accelerating also. It so, totally is. I, I just mean, I like think- learned what crypto was and then they're like, Oh, crypto's out. And you're like, what? I thought it was, I thought it was in. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see what, uh, what comes next. We'll, we'll still be here. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. What do you guys, I mean, this hype cycle, right? I mean, it's definitely a hype cycle at the end of the day, um, but something's going to shake out of it that is going to like manifest itself in the world. Are you guys in kind of like the, are you in the web three camp, web 2.5 camp? Like where do you, do you think the pendulum is going to swing and kind of land back in the middle? I know it's a very broad question. Take it whatever direction you want, but just curious from two guys that pay a lot of attention. I mean, the, the question or questions I ask uh, tend to be focused on, you know, it, what problem, what problem is this solving? Like, is, yeah. this, is this solving a real problem versus you and your utility oriented um, thoughts, <laughs> specifically a like a real, like, like, <laughs> like a consumer problem that's going to drive, you know, a critical scale adoption. Yeah. Um, and you know, if the answer is no, and you just hear a set of talking points, like, trustless, decentralized, uh, censorship proof, you know, one, you know, some of those things might not even be true. I seem to remember, um, uh, whoever did that like giant Bitcoin heist finally getting busted by uh, the DOJ recently. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, I mean, a set of talking points versus like actual utility and trying to like distinguish between the two. And it's not always easy, um, particularly in the moment. But, yeah. you know, if you sort of look at, I mean, looking at what's trend and what's fundamental and then like trying to understand what 
might have staying power and in, in, in what won't. And being wrong half the time. Yeah. More than half, more than half in my experience. But good for you if it's only half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think something you have to sort of look at almost from with like a fundamental sort of lens. Like for me, the thing is I trust individual people a lot. And then I trust groups of people that get together less. And then I trust groups of people that get together in pursuit of profit the least, which is to say none. <laughs> and so for me, like the thing with web three that is concerning and that I, I continue to try to keep tabs on and try to understand is financial incentives and sort of group cohesion and behavior are sort of built into the idea of web three, right? Like it's designed to create communities with financial incentives built in as sort of a fundamental building block. And so it's really hard to untangle when you look at these projects, the utility and the problem that's sort of claimed to be the focus of what they're trying to do versus the financial incentives that people have. And I think it's very possible that those financial incentives and sort of the tokenomics built into it could actually be a benefit to sort of overcoming the cold start problem and, you know, creating, you know, a, a flywheel that gets going. So then you can start to realize network effects and then the token uh, value can kind of drop off later. Like I'm intrigued by that as a hypothetical, but generally speaking, and I think we've seen this a lot in crypto and web three so far, you know, financial incentives screw a lot of stuff up, right? I mean, they do attract talent and they attract, um, you know, investment and growth and activity and building, but they also attract a lot of fraud. They also attract a lot of dishonesty. And so watching how that shakes out and seeing how much utility we end up with out of all of this sort of financial incentivizing that's happening right now, I honestly don't know what's going to happen, but that's, that's kind of the nexus of the problem from my perspective. I'm just impressed that, you know, a industry has turned a, uh, being a pyramid scheme into a specific marketing tactic. Like, well, and they're very upfront. It's a new it. vertical. It's amazing. It's like, you know, you're like, what's well, a Ponzi scheme. And they're like, right, you're getting it. Now you're starting to get the model. And it's like, I thought that was like a bad thing. I thought I just got you, but like, it's really not. And again, maybe the Ponzi scheme ish nature to a lot of these models does provide some long-term utility. I guess that's possible, but it is deeply concerning in the short term. Could you make the argument? Could you make the same argument about VC at the end of the day? Like you're getting in at this, at this very, very early stage and you're letting things grow and selling it off to someone else and they sell it off to someone else and they well, sell so, it off to someone else. So that's I'm not saying it's like a one-to-one, but like, are there, is no, there overlap? No, I think it's a great question. I mean, and, and this is where, you know, I don't think you can let like FinTech off the hook relative to like web three, because my problem with FinTech is when VC dollars subsidize things that are utterly impractical without that money to exist. Right. And so like someone, someone one time I was reading a story where they analogized um, San Francisco to like this biome that's just filled with money. So you get all these like subsidized services that you'd never get anywhere else. Like how is it possible yeah. that they could offer, you know, two minute grocery delivery to my house for these like low fees? Well, it's actually not possible, but within this small little community where they're trying out these models and pouring a ton of money into it, it is possible for a short period of time. And so to me, the concern with fintech that's very similar is 
you know, you put all of this money in at these very early stages trying to warp consumer expectations. And in banking, we already struggle with this, right? People expect checking accounts to be free. Well, checking accounts aren't free, right? It costs money to take someone's money, keep it safe and give them on-demand access to a 24-7. Like that's an expensive job to be done. And we give it away for free. And now we can't go back because we've trained consumers to think it should be free. VC money flowing into fintech does not help that problem. And so to me, that's it's really the same concern, just dressed up slightly differently. The, the overlap feels very strong to me. Did you have something to say? No, I, was, I agree with Alex. <laughs> <laughs> and on to the next. To <laughs> on to the next. Um, but yeah, I mean, at that, at that debate, uh, it's Wednesday. So that was two days ago. Uh, no, that was yesterday. Yesterday. At the debate yesterday. Yep. Um, Sheil Manat used the term t- uh, Ponzi-nomics, I think like two or three times. Mm-hmm. And I, I think me and like one other person on the debate stage were like, what? And everyone in the crowd was just like, uh, well, maybe they weren't paying attention, but we could have been like, asleep still. Yeah. Yeah. They were just like, I don't want to be here. Um, but a few of them I could see like nodding their heads up and down just, yeah, that sounds about right. And I mean, to, I think it was Frank Rotman that said it about like the, the kind of house money situation that we're running mm-hmm. with right now in crypto, mm-hmm. like so much of what we're seeing in this like ladder stage before the bubble potentially pops is a lot of a lot of house money going after the next insane thing, going after the next insane thing. Like one of the things I brought up yesterday was I was walking through times square Monday night, Times square, whatever, wherever it is around here. <laughs> um, and there was a billboard, uh, for a batch of NFTs that are launching in, you saw this, I walked by that on my way, the yeah. wolves. Yeah. The wolves like, oh, with yep, laser eyes. Yep. It feels like, <laughs> it's like peak. the end is near. <laughs> the end is near. It's just, I don't know. It, but at the same time, you know that the companies that we all kind of hold near and dear for the most part, and a lot of the startups that we probably spend time with are like going to come out the other end of whatever this thing is. But I think it's going to shake out a good number yeah, of I mean, bullshitters. It, 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 it's forcing people to ask a question of, you know, what is money? What is value in a way that I honestly had not thought about, even though I've worked in this, worked in finance or in banking for, you know, 10 or 12 years. It's like, okay, Jack Dorsey can sell an NFT of his first tweet for whatever, like $3 million. But then if you try to resell it a year later and you only get a thousand, was it ever worth $3 million? Yeah. Should you have just bought some Herbalife product? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of, of things that look somewhat like that where it's like, yeah, like you can sell this thing once at this price, or you can say that this token or this crypto or whatever is worth X. But if you can't actually convert that into a real life physical good or service, all all money is, is a claim on goods and services. So if you can't sell that asset and turn it into a claim on a good or service, then it's not really worth that in the first place. Well, it's fascinating how in crypto in particular, and I guess we've done this for a long time as like human beings, but crypto sort of lays it all bare where it's like, we're really just trying to manifest something into existence by believing in it strongly enough together. Right. So it's like, I feel like that happens a lot in crypto where it's like, well, why are these worth a lot? Well, because we believe they're worth a lot. And like, if we can just sustain and protect that belief eventually, and there's plenty of examples of this today where things are worth way more than they should be based on their utility. So it does happen, but it's interesting to watch a group of people just try with all of their might to wish something into existence. And I think you see, kind of speaking of the house money effect, a lot of larger crypto companies 
now have investment arms, right? So they have like a venture arm and they'll invest in other crypto companies. And one of the ones that jumped out to me that was interesting, and Jason alluded to it earlier, was when Sky Mavis had their $625 million hack uh, for their Axie Infinity game, um, Binance stepped in with the financing that they needed to make all of their users whole. And that's a very nice thing for them to do. But it did strike me as, you know, and the quote from the CEO of Binance actually basically said this. They were like, we have to maintain belief in crypto. It's important for all of us. And so they sort of shuttle the money around to whoever needs it in order to make sure that we prop up a belief in this thing, which, again, maybe we get to the other side of this and we all believed in it long enough that it becomes a thing and it's durable and it becomes an asset and it exists. But it's fascinating to watch with no constructs around it, just trying to wish and believe something into existence. I'm so with you on all of it, but also a lot of what you just said sounds like fed minutes. hundred percent. It sounds like, you know, well, we got to maintain, uh, we got to maintain faith in the currency and right. you know, it's like the, it seems like fiat has a lot yeah, of the same issues. Can you do it without the sovereign? Can right. You, exactly. Can, like, can exactly. You keep up that, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't use the word charade, but you know, can you keep up that illusion, that belief totally. yeah. without the power of the state and do, yeah. you know, these crypto companies, or in some cases, protocols, which are not like directly controlled or held accountable to or by anybody, mm -hmm. like, can they achieve that? And right now, that's, that's an, an unknown. And at some point in the future, I imagine it will become a known. Yeah. I mean, due to the lack of regulation, to your point, it is kind of the perfect setup for a flash crash. It's the perfect setup for everything to go from where we are today to not where way below floor prices very quickly and leaving somebody holding the bag in a very potentially unfortunate way. Yeah. And says it, or like that just never happens. And all of us who are sort of predicting that it happens are like, okay, I, I don't get why this is now a thing, but it is. And that's, that's fine too. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Like I am like Jason, I hadn't really thought of the like deep sort of psychological roots around money, but like the more you dig into this stuff, the more it's just like, yeah, we're trying to build a thing that people will believe in. And if they believe in it enough, then it'll have value. And to your point, that's how fiat money works. That's how basically everything works. And so it's interesting Society, to watch it dude, play like out. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like, I mean, you know, we were joking before we got on the podcast about, you know, New Yorkers all driving around, you know, looking like any minute they're going to kill someone, but they don't. And everyone mostly follows the laws, even though jaywalking is not clearly enforced. But like, that's just the way that society works. So it'll be fascinating to see if we can sustain this. Yeah, I think that that's a more clear-eyed view than some of the common talking points you would hear about Bitcoin. You know, it's it's digitally scarce. It's like that might be true of Bitcoin, but if I can copy it and make Jason coin or Doge exactly the same <laughs> yeah. or Doge, in practice, it is not true. Right. And same thing with NFTs. It's like setting aside all of the you know theft and IP infringement that's rampant in the space. Like I can take your monkey and draw an X on it and then mint that. And so like, yeah, you have that one, but I can make one that's like almost identical. So well, it's amazing watching like, those communities like fight and like get so angry. About <laughs> I was it. an early ape. Right, right. Fuck you're, you. Yeah, you're, you're destroying the value of my intellectual property. It's like they're just doing what everyone has been doing on yeah. the Internet since it existed. And but it's it's funny how these things accrue value. And now, you know, I mean, what is it? Yuga Labs. I mean, they're worth an outstanding amount of money. And people have sort of speculated on like, will they be the next Marvel? Will they be the next Disney? Will they become this massive content creation machine? And it's entirely possible. And, you know, like in the future, I have two young kids and it's like they may have Yuga Labs sweatshirts yeah. in, you know, 
15 years yeah. and I'll just be sort of like rubbing my hand on my face, trying to understand what happened. I hope it means something different than like wearing a board ape sweatshirt right now to me says a lot about a person. Totally. And, uh, I hope it means something different by then. Me too. Me yeah. too. Did you see the other side video that they did? The Yuga labs did? No. Oh my God. When we get done, I'll turn it on. It, and listeners, I highly recommend watching this thing. It is actually the thing. So I actually really liked board apes and I still do as and this is people think I'm fucking insane, but I like it as a piece of art. Sure. I think they're fun. I think they're interesting. I'm so fascinated by the idea that like a, an owned board ape on an Apple watch in Miami is like hotter than a Rolex. Like, that's fascinating totally. to me, you know? And like, is the in there maybe, but it, it like in the Sheba or whatever it is, the, the board dogs or whatever the fuck they're called, you know, but like it's kind of yep. that point of like, they're starting to cannibalize their own brand a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but watching that video gives me a sense of maybe they could be the next Marvel. Well, calling it a brand is exactly right. It's like, yeah. you know, why will you pay more for a Rolex than, you know, some watch that's yeah. know, like a citizen tells time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or diamonds are an even better case in point where mm -hmm. we've all been, you know, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but like manipulated by De Beers for like generations to think that this is a rare and very valuable item when in practice it's not really. It's like it's branding. And so, I mean, if you can attach that to Bitcoin or to Bored Apes or, or whatever and maintain it, then perhaps you can maintain the value that's attached to it. The the part of the narrative that bugs me as it relates to all this is I think all of that's exactly true. And like, you know. Yuga Labs may end up being this like massive multi-billion dollar company. Great. That's fine. They're already a $4 billion company, I know, dude. I know. <laughs> Maybe they'll remain that way, I guess. Yeah, I there you go. Said. There you go. Or become more valuable hypothetically. Exactly. But yeah. it's like, that is not democratizing access to wealth. Like, no, let's just it doesn't be, have shit to do with that. Let's just be totally clear about like, it is not that. Are, do so, you think people are making that argument about bored apes? I mean, I think NFTs That's also a common topic generally, right? It's well, just about like, Web3, sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. like, but so much of Web3 seems to sort of accrue value back to the same kind of small set of stakeholders. And I'm, that's not a criticism, right? Like that's how companies work. That's how capitalism works. I'm fine with it. That's absolutely fine. But the narrative around web three being about democratizing access to financial services really bugs me because if we could just talk about what it actually is, I think it's fine. I think it's interesting. I actually do think there are some really interesting technological implications to totally. being able to decentralize ownership and being able to have zero knowledge proofs and be able to kind of carry your identity around the internet. Like I'm fascinated by all of that. It's really cool, but we need to stop with the financial inclusion, democratizing access to wealth because it's not the goal of it. It's not the focus of it. And it's not a guaranteed outcome by any means. It's the opposite. I mean, it's like web two level aggregation of wealth to the top 1% right now. hundred percent. Well, and it's yeah. like, you know, VCs aren't stupid, right? Like, I mean, there's a reason that they're all jumping into crypto. And again, yeah. I don't have a problem with that, but please don't tell me it's about democratizing access to financial services and wealth because it's just not. I mean, I'm, I'm cynical enough to assume that those are uh, talking points aimed squarely at sort of like the regulatory and policy establishment to say, totally like we're, we're, we're doing good things with crypto and web three. We're promoting access and inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, which I, I also don't really think that that is what's happening. Here. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, inherently there's where we stand right now. How could it possibly, right? Like the amount of technical knowledge that you would need to onboard into web three without a bank account 
Like, I don't, I don't even, I don't know where you would start with that. I mean, I guess you would like meet somebody in a back alley and provide some cash for some something. And that would like, it, you would go back to like 2011 or something like that. But the idea that Coinbase is going to increase the, you know, the next generation's access to, to banking services. It's like you, how you got to fund the account, which means you need a bank account. A hundred percent. Well, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating too, how, you know, you look at things like, um, you know, Coinbase and the focus is on, yeah, we're going to, you know, democratize access to this. We're going to, I'm starting to see crypto investing kind of creeping into like kids banking apps and all these kind of things. And again, I, I think it's good to sort of have a broad view of what capabilities you can add to financial services, but crypto equals wealth, I think is a very dangerous assumption oh, from entirely. an investing perspective. And like, you know, when I see those things get added to these products, again, the cynic in me and Jason and I, are, I think I both a little more cynical than the average fintech writer or commentator, but, um, the cynical part of me definitely jumps to it's great for engagement, yeah, super fun and super engaging, maybe not great for actually building long-term wealth. And again, maybe I'm wrong there. Well, no, in, in, I mean, I made a similar point in a critique of Step, which added crypto trading yeah. to its app, which is aimed at like 15-year-olds. Yep, yep. So now they have crypto on the app and Charlie D'Amelio? Yeah. I give um, up. I give up. Uh, and I need a drink. You guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's only water in here. Um, yeah, my bad. I didn't know we were going to go to Charlie D'Amelio. <laughs> no, but I mean, that, that uh, exposure to that, particularly at a formative age. Yeah has the potential to color how um, a generation thinks about what investing is and how they do it for a long time. I mean, if I think of more or less my generation coming up, uh, you know, post-university in like 2008, when I was like, oh man, like the economy's trashed, the bankers ruined it, mom and dad's 401k is gone, mom and dad's house is gone. Right. And it, it really, I mean, there's academic studies that it changed the risk tolerance of sort of a certain segment of, um, you know, people or of investors who experience that at a certain point in their life. I mean, Great Depression obviously also like changed, you know, grandma's keeping everything in the crawl space in the basement because you might need that uh, right, right. empty jar one day. Yeah. So what does it mean to have, you know, crypto on your phone at 15 that you can buy and sell and trade? And how is that going to change the way you think and, um, you know, practice investing over your lifetime. Like we don't know, but I don't think it's going to be good. Right. right yeah. Right. I mean, to Alex's point, no wonder, like, I mean, I think, I don't think we're all necessarily close to the same age, but I think we all have similar inputs in terms of like 2008 was a very clear moment for all of us. Yeah. Right. And no wonder there's a little cynicism in the room. If you've experienced the set of incentives that led us there. Right. And the, the thing that scares me the most is taking our eye off the ball. Like web three and it's fascinating, but we still have like the average person signing up for Robin hood, not understanding that high frequency trading on the back end, And, you know, uh, you should maybe set a limit order, not a market order because they will rip your face off. Things like that, that are very, to, to me, having gone through the retirement world, gone through, you know, brokerage world, whatever. It's just like, that's table stakes knowledge. Totally what the fuck are we doing putting crypto on kids' phones if we don't have that table stakes knowledge? Like what the fuck in terms of prioritization and just like the things that we actually should be solving as of right now. And I guess portions of web three, maybe solve high frequency, high frequency trading or something like that. But I don't know. It just, it feels like we're misprioritizing at certain points. Well, and I feel like one of the things that um, we sort of get away from in FinTech, but is so core to like what we're doing is 
if you really want to improve financial outcomes for people, you need to help them change their behaviors, right? Like that's just what it is. And anyone who has a product that is like based on like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to like give people more choices. We're going to give people more tools. We're going to just like, we're going to democratize access to these capabilities and give more of them to the people. It sounds good. It makes a good soundbite, but it's not really the way to help people improve their financial outcomes long-term, right? It makes for a more engaging experience. You can probably make more money doing that. But like, you know, I, I always come back to the analogy of like healthcare and like physical fitness, right? Like that's the business you're in if you work in financial services is trying to help people be more financially healthy. And part of that is a product thing and making sure that you're continuing to innovate on the product thing. But a big part of it is how do you put systems in place that help people develop better behaviors? And I don't see that type of focus as much in fintech as I wish that we saw, especially given the amount of funding that we've raised, right? Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's happening on this, like, like the atomics or the pinwheels or whatever of the world, like on an infrastructure layer, giving you the ability to like route your paycheck to repay a loan before it hits your bank. Like that to me, that's like the exciting, like people just glaze over. But to me, that's the exciting shit. Totally agree. You know, that's the stuff that that's the stuff that I think should get us out of bed in the morning and, and drive us forward. And, but well, I mean the companies, many of the companies that do the kinds of things uh, Alex is describing, it results in a less profitable business. And that's that's right. one that's less attractive to fund. So yep. yeah. not to you know point the finger at VCs again, but you know, if you look at the businesses that are going to attract funding, you know, they tend to be the ones that are able to extract more revenue per user. Well, I mean, Robinhood is like a social media app, right? Like that's what it actually is. If you sort of strip away what it does and look at the behavior of the users on the platform, it's a video game. It's a video game. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And if you look at the fucking people they hire to build it, it's like clear as day. And I mean, and credit to their graphic designers and user designers, like it's a beautiful app. It's a beautiful video game. It's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen, but it's geared towards driving a set of behaviors that are in a lot of cases, antithetical to like actually building well and, you know, having a good long-term financial outcome. That's just not what they're designing it for. I mean, yeah. so are rewards points on credit cards, but I love my Chase Sapphire <laughs> points. <laughs> yeah, but the, there's a certain amount of like, you probably need to make that purchase and incentivizing you to make that purchase on this card versus that card. I mean, I know you're joking, but this card versus that card is a very different thing than like, I mean, post 2008, I'm sure there's a lot of folks in New York, and this is getting dark really fast, but um, there's a lot of folks in New York that probably either considered committing suicide or committed suicide as a result of the crash, right? Their lives were torn apart, but in most cases, and not in most cases, actually, a lot of average Americans were fucking impacted deeply because of the disgusting shit that happened. But like, I don't, if a billionaire loses half their wealth and like gets really sad about it, to me, that's very different than the stories that we hear about a kid not understanding the options trading on Robin hood. And then he ends up killing himself because he thought he had this burden that he didn't actually have. It's like how, oh my God, I just don't understand how you could not make changes in, not create a little less democratization in certain pieces of the app. Well, it's like, you, you know? have to, you have to take, I mean, this is, I think the core thing it's like, and, and credit to bankers, generally speaking for this, even though there are tons of bad examples as well, but generally like if you work in financial services you take the responsibility of working in financial services seriously, right? Like it is a very, that's very true, serious business. And, you know, I think that, 
you know, bankers and others get sort of a bad rap for being sort of stodgy or uncool or sort of way too risk averse or conservative, but like they're that way because they're dealing with people's money. Right. And like, I think a manifestation of this in FinTech that bugs me is like customer service. Right. And the Robin hood example is a good one. The kid didn't have someone he could call. He sent a bunch of emails. They didn't get back to him. Yep. And it's because it's a more profitable business model to focus on self-service and really, you know, skim on customer service as much as you possibly can. And I get why, right. Everyone wants to build a SaaS business in FinTech. That's venture backable. It'll return the fund if it works out. But customer service is so important in financial services because when people have a problem with their money, they want to call someone. They don't want to audit a smart contract. They don't want to go onto Discord. They don't want to send an email. They want to talk to a human being. And that is never not going to be true. I mean, even it blows my mind that we still have yet to, at this point, find a neobank that truly leans into that. Like I'm, I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but no, maybe you guys have found I don't one. I think you're wrong. <laughs> or even like- one of my favorite apps that I actually don't use that often is public and just yeah. like the way that they kind of share, like they actually try and ed- part of it is an engagement tool, but part of it is they're actually trying to educate in certain ways and the lack of high frequency trading and whatnot helps a lot, but I, don't, I have no idea if they have decent service or not, but the fact that they get out ahead of it, I like, but I, I don't know if, if you guys, like, is there not even just in neobanks, but in stock trading apps, anything like who I mean, I has think, service as an advantage at this point? I think part of the challenge is that, you know, many of these, apps are aimed, uh, particularly with the neobank apps, are aimed at a, a lower income audience who may not have a lot of other good choices or the choices they had were incurring NSF overdraft maintenance fees. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, well, this is the best I can get. So if Chime or Green Dot or whoever, I can only do it through a ticket in the app and you know they don't respond for two days, like there are, there's another app that has equally bad service. Yeah. Uh, it's fair. It's better in a payday loan. Yeah. I just don't, I don't see a lot of options, um, out there that are just like really well staffed from a customer service standpoint. But to your point, I absolutely think there's a need for it. And it is interesting because while I think a lot of the biggest neobanks have gone after sort of traditionally underserved consumers, you see a lot of other fintech apps that are like, nope, we want prime credit customers. We want kind of young, wealthy, haven't had kids yet, whatever. Like they they target segments where there should be margin to add customer service. But I feel like on a sort of Silicon Valley tech SaaS sort of level, the idea of having a call center somewhere that's staffed with really great people that can help in the event that maybe someone has an issue and maybe they won't, and maybe sometimes the call center won't be that busy. That's just very antithetical to the way that I think most FinTech founders think about building companies. And it's, it's too much tech and not enough fin, honestly. No, I, I agree. I uh, was uh, a short anecdote transfer wise, which is a service I use frequently and I'm generally very happy with. Uh, but there was one transfer I was trying to make and it like, basically was blocked and wouldn't go through and there was like no way to reset it. So I'm like, okay, I've never had to contact customer service before, but like now I actually legitimately need to. Yeah. There is no, there was no phone number. There's no phone number anywhere on their You're website. You're like digging and digging on their website and their app for trying uh, to find the phone number. Uh, doing like Google site operator search, oh, like, like scan all. Oh my God. Can't find it anywhere. And so, you know, me being me, like made a slightly snarky tweet about it. Mm. Uh, but also me being me, get an email from their product management team reaching out to me asking if I can describe the problem and get on a phone with them. 
So uh, you but can I don't get, think normal people get that level of service. I was going to say, you can get great customer service if you start a fintech newsletter <laughs> and get <laughs> the people the who work at the company to follow you. And then if you have a problem, <laughs> just tweet at them and they'll yeah, be right is, there. Uh, right that's there. scalable. <laughs> that's the lesson. I think if there's one lesson from this conversation, that's it. Um, and actually, we kind of got to leave it there because I need to jump into a meeting and we're already over time. Guys. Thank you. My last question that I always ask, and I'll ask it to each one of you, is kind of twofold. One is, what can the listenership do to help you? If I, I don't know if you guys are normally, I'm like you're hiring, whatever. So it's probably something slightly lesser, not less than that, but like unique uh, for you guys. And the second piece is, how do they get in touch with you? And we started with Jason, so we're starting with Alex. Got it. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, how can you help? Well, I'd love people to read my newsletter and um, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, point out mistakes that I made. Ask questions. I love engagement. Um, I, I wish more people would hit reply after reading the newsletter, even if they have problems with it or don't like it. So please read and engage with the newsletter would be my request. And then um, in terms of how to get in contact with me, uh, my newsletter is at uh, fintechtakes.com. Um, and I am Alex H underscore Johnson on Twitter and I'm utterly addicted to Twitter. So I'll definitely be there as well. You are utterly addicted to Twitter. <laughs> we can vouch. <laughs> Jason. Um, I would say uh, how they can help me. Any good story ideas? You know, I need to find something, a new beat besides uh, BMPL and CFPB. My no, you favorite, don't. That's going to be my there favorite forever. acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even, even I'm tired of writing about that. Um, yeah, and feedback is always welcome. I mean, there's, there's nothing uh, that... Uh, motivates me more than hearing that somebody is like finding value in, in what I'm spending time doing. If you have constructive criticism, <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that as well. Yeah, be nice, people. <laughs> um, and uh, to get in touch with me, the uh, the newsletter is uh, Fintech Business Weekly, um, which you can find on Substack. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter, which is <laughs> Makula JA. We both pick like very like. They're terrible. Yeah. I'll, I'll take at Alex yeah. from uh, Alex Wilhelm at TechCrunch if he's listening. Like, I'm happy to take that off your hand. Oh, I'm sure he's listening 100% yeah. at yeah, this yeah, yeah. point. Yeah. Even if he was listening at one point, I, we might have lost him somewhere in the midst of high frequency trading suicides. <laughs> um, guys, thank you. I seriously appreciate it. Jason, we got you above 14th. Yeah. It meant a lot for you to make the trek. Um, <laughs> I've learned a lot from you guys, and I would say, 100% listeners go take a look at both of their work. Uh, they're wonderful humans. And I also recommend hanging out with them in person if you ever get a chance, because yeah. this has been a fucking pleasure. Thank you guys. Likewise. Cheers. Thanks for joining the conversation, everybody. Hope you enjoyed our time with Alex and Jason. Jump into the show notes to subscribe to their wonderful newsletters and learn more. And again, welcome to NeuroID, the one, the only behavioral analytics platform solving all of the world's problems when it comes to fraud, when it comes to ID verification, and just being good people out there in the world of fintech. If you want to learn more about NeuroID and specifically want to find out more about that report that I mentioned up front about fraud rings, go to neuroid.com backslash FFS, neuroid.com backslash FFS, driving it home. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the incredible responsibly, incredibly responsible, I can't talk today, podcast host that I am. Go to forfintechsake.com to subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and I'm sticking with the same sign-off as last week. I love you all.